Hello, and welcome to Never the Twins Shall Meet, a podcast hosted by twin sisters, separated by distance, but united by nerdiness. I'm your host, Pi. And I'm your co-host, Lulu. So before we get into today's episode, is there anything that you've been into or up to that you'd like to tell our listeners about? Yeah, definitely. I have finished with my junior year of college, so I've had some free time on my hands to read stuff that is not my course readings, and I've been definitely taking advantage of that. I finished reading The Scapegracers by H.A. Clark recently, which I really enjoyed. It's a teen paranormal novel about a kind of weirdo, loner, lesbian witch who unexpectedly becomes friends with a clique of popular girls when she's invited to perform a spell at their Halloween party and make it a little extra spooky. It's very fun. It's kind of about like friendship and coming of age, but like with a healthy dose of magic and also some witch hunters. Also, the main character had a pair of dads who ran a goth antique store that I really enjoyed. It was pretty fun. And I think we might do an episode on witch books in the future. So if the idea of a book about teen witches running around causing havoc appeals to you, maybe stay tuned for that. I'm currently reading The Scapegracers and really enjoying it. So I second our hopeful plan of maybe doing a witch episode at some point. Since it's Pride Month when we're recording this, but probably not when this will be released, I've been making an attempt to read a number of books by LGBTQ creators, and I've read the graphic novel Queer as All Get Out, 10 People Who've Inspired Me by Shelby Criswell. It's kind of part memoir, part exploration of broader LGBTQ history, and it's pretty much what it sounds like. It's the author talking a little bit about their life and their journey to coming into their identity, but also historical figures that they have looked up to who are either well-known icons or less known members of the LGBTQ community. I really liked it because I like learning about history. And also there was a good number of historical figures that I hadn't heard about. So it was also very informative. And I also just finished reading a great novel, which was The Heartbreak Bakery by A.R. Capetta. It was about a non-binary teenage baker who after a really bad breakup, bakes a batch of brownies that makes everyone who eats them break up and has to run around trying to fix the damage that said magical brownies caused. It was really lovely and heartwarming. It's basically a love letter to queer communities and self-discovery and the power of baked goods. The only problem with it was that it made me very hungry. So if you're going to read it, I would suggest you read it with like a very tasty baked good in hand. I really liked it though. I read it on your recommendation and it was a great read for Pride Month. So it was just good times all around. Is there anything that you want to highlight before we start talking about the more general episode? Well, in our last episode, I said that I didn't like books about haunted houses, but I think I may have to backtrack on that because I recently read one that I actually really enjoyed. I read The Widow of Rose House by Diana Biller, which is a historical romance novel set in Gilded Age, New York. And it's about a widow with a scandalous reputation and an eccentric professor who team up to try to uncover the secrets of the ghosts haunting a really old house that one of them owns. And I actually really enjoyed the ghosts in it. It was spooky, but not so spooky that I was lying awake at night being like, what if there are ghosts? And the romance was really sweet. And the setting was also really fun. I love Gilded Age New York. So it was just like overall an enjoyable book. And I did, in fact, enjoy reading something with horror elements. So you know what? People can change, actually. It's growth. I also read the first two books in the Rooks and Ruin trilogy by Melissa Caruso, The Obsidian Tower and The Quicksilver Court, which are a part of a high fantasy series about a mage who kills everything she touches, which is unfortunately a bit of a problem for her because she's also a diplomat. So there's a lot of 
fantasy intrigue and political drama and evil magic and desperately trying to keep people from backstabbing each other when you can't actually touch them and some plot twists that maybe gasp out loud. Unfortunately, the third book in the trilogy is not out yet, so I'm just like sitting here waiting for it so I can finally resolve that big cliffhanger ending, but I overall really enjoyed it. It was a great series. Also, because it's Pride Month, I read a memoir, Something That May Shock and Discredit You by Daniel Lavery, which is kind of a strange experimental memoir told through a series of slightly interconnected essays about being trans and religion and life and growing up and it was often very funny but it also had a lot to say and I found the experimental format super interesting so that was just like an interesting read and I've been trying to do reading more non-fiction lately so I just enjoyed reading that. And speaking of things that are strange, I have also been watching the TV show Legion, which is very, very loosely based on X-Men comics, but is mostly about people having extremely bizarre adventures in the astral plane. And it's quite good, but I do understand what is going on in it, which is not all of the time. Yeah, sometimes you try to explain the plot of that TV show to me, and I just kind of have to nod my head and be like, I'm sure that makes sense to you, but I don't understand anything you're saying right now. (laughs) Speaking of things that are strange or might not make sense, or involve secrets. This episode, we are going to be talking about thrillers, which is kind of new territory for this podcast. We have talked about some novels with mystery elements, but there's usually been like a big dose of magic alongside the murder stuff. But we're going to be talking about two straight up mysteries with no wizards or magic. And those are Bad Things Happen Here by Rebecca Barrow and I Killed Zoe Spanos by Kit Frick. They're two young adult thrillers that also coincidentally involve communities of rich people and dead bodies being found in bodies of water that kick off murder investigations. Also, they both have very on-the-nose titles. This is the new genre for this podcast, so I'm excited to expand our horizons and talk about new stuff. Bad Things Happen Here is also a particularly exciting book for us to discuss on the podcast because we got an advanced copy of it through the publisher. So thank you, Simon & Schuster Children's Publishing. Yes, thank you. It was really exciting to get a copy of this book, and we both had a really good time reading it. For a little bit of context, actually, Bad Things Happen Here is Rebecca Barrow's first foray into writing thrillers, but both of us are actually huge fans of her previous novels, which are You Don't Know Me, But I Know You, and that's more of a coming-of-age story about an adopted girl navigating teenage pregnancy, and This Is What It Feels Like, which is about a group of ex-friends who reform their band for a competition. So we were very excited when Simon & Schuster reached out and was like, would you like an advanced reader's copy of this book? Because it was definitely on my radar because I was excited to see Rebecca Barrow branch out into a new genre. And thankfully we both really liked it. It's also a great summer read, I think. We read it in the spring, but both I Killed Zoe Spanos and Bad Things Happen Here, I would say are like good summer thriller reads. So it feels very fitting that we're recording this right now in June. Yes, if you want to read them on your summer vacation and be like, what if? something terrible happened, then I would recommend one of those books. And yeah, we did both really enjoy Rebecca Barrow's other books. She writes about teenagers and coming of age in a way that feels like very real and present and relatable. And so we were super excited for her first thriller. Bad Things Happen Here is about Luca Lane Thomas, who is a girl that lives in an elite exclusive community on the island of Paris, which also happens to be an island that's plagued by a long history of girls dying in mysterious, tragic ways. And I think... Paris is somewhere in America. That was the vibe that I got. It gave me like California vibes personally. 
Yeah, Rebecca Barrow is British, but from the way the characters talked and the way the setting was described, I think it's supposed to be somewhere off the coast of America, like one of those islands that's mostly inhabited by like rich white people who want a summer getaway from the city. The setting is really well described. I think we'll probably talk about that a bit later. So Luca, who is a year-round inhabitant of Paris, her best friend drowned three years ago, and she's still haunted by her death at the start of the novel because it was ruled an accident, but... Luca has always felt like there was more to it than that and has kind of felt like people just brushed it off and closed the case just so they could close the case. And because there's this long string of girls dying in unpleasant but unrelated ways in Paris, there's sort of these rumors that the island is cursed and Luca firmly believes that her best friend Polly's death was the result of a curse, not just an accident, and she is not willing to like forget about it and move on with her life the way that everyone else is. Luca is also somewhat of an outsider in Paris because she genuinely believes that there's some kind of curse and not all the characters do. Some of them jokingly believe in it, but also just because of who she is. She's also an outsider because of her identities as a black, fat, queer, and mentally ill girl. She has anxiety and depression, which play a pretty big role in the book. And Paris is mostly an island of rich white people who would really rather not think about the disturbing stuff that's happening on their island. So Luca doesn't quite fit in because of who she is and also what she believes about her friend's death. Luca's mental health is a pretty big part of bad things happen here, but I thought it was handled really well. I think, I don't read a ton of thrillers, but I do occasionally dip into the genre because I'll pretty much read anything. And I think I've definitely read thrillers that are like, ooh, this person is mentally ill and it means they're unstable and unreliable and like evil and like use mental health as a plot twist. But I feel like in the case of Luca as a protagonist, it feels like her anxiety and her depression are legitimate parts of her character that are handled very sensitively. Like she is coping with her mental health because she's on medication and she sees a therapist. And like, she's not considered like unreliable or unstable by the narrative because of her mental illness. But it's also like something that she has to deal with that she knows can't be cured, but she can live with it. And I thought it was like a nice contrast to some other thrillers that I've read that I won't name because this is just sort of like a broad trend, not one specific book where someone's mental illness might be used as like a twist or a way to prove that the character is unreliable. Like with Luca, it's just an aspect of who she is and something that affects her life, but something that she's learned to live with. So I thought it was like a very sensitively handled and nuanced aspect of the character that seemed like it came from like a place of genuine authenticity and like a desire to represent mental health in a sensitive way as opposed to just be like, gotcha, the main character of this might not be reliable because sometimes she gets really sad. So I thought that was like a good part of this novel that I personally really appreciated. Yeah, I definitely agree with what you said. I've definitely read thrillers that use mental illness in a very sensationalizing and offensive way. Like they're like either like the main character is mentally ill, and therefore we can't rely on anything they're doing or like plot twists, other characters mentally ill, that suddenly means they're actually evil. But this book very much does not do that. Bad Things Happens Here's take on mental health felt a lot more nuanced and realistic. Characters in the book might doubt Luca's opinions or thoughts because of her mental illness, but the narrative itself never feels like it's trying to imply that she's unreliable or bad because she suffers from anxiety or depression. It's not something that's like magically cured. It's not something that defines her. It's just a part of her character. And unlike a lot of other thrillers, it doesn't try to show that this part is like something that makes her bad. It's just a thing that she exists with. I think it also does contribute to Luca often feeling like an outsider in Paris because she lives in a society that demonizes certain kinds of mental health issues, especially stuff that isn't like pretty or easy to explain, especially because Luca deals with intrusive thoughts about 
self-harm and suicide, which are like difficult to explain to people and something that she keeps very close to herself. And I think sort of contributes to her sense that she feels like she's kind of disconnected from Paris at a whole. Like she is part of the community and her parents live there, but also at the same time, she has seen the dark side of Paris because she's lost her friend many years ago and has seen everyone else kind of cover it up and move on. But also she kind of understands the world in a different way that a lot of other people who might be like carefree and rich and privileged. So I think it really adds like a layer to her character in that part of the reason that she is so unwilling to let go of Polly's death and is like critical of Paris is because just because of the way that she processes the world is different from other people. At the start of the novel, some new neighbors move into Polly's old house, including the new girl, Naomi Fontaine. And this is kind of what kicks off the plot. Luca and Naomi immediately become friends and they kind of bond over specifically having dead best friends, Luca with her friend Polly and Naomi with a childhood friend who died in a car accident. And so like they at first begin to bond over having this grief that other people don't necessarily understand, but then they also begin to develop feelings for each other and become close just like because they become friends and not just because they share this kind of unfortunate thing that happened to them. Naomi is also biracial like Luca. She's Filipino and Irish. And so Paris is full of rich white people and they kind of find themselves drawn together because of that as well. They're kind of two characters who don't feel like they quite belong on Paris, both because of their backgrounds and also because of things that have happened to them in the past. And so they kind of become friends and Luca confides in her about a lot of stuff that she hasn't talked to other people about, such as her belief that maybe Polly actually was murdered. Luca also like immediately starts crushing on Naomi, which is kind of a big departure from the rest of her life because the last time she had feelings for a female friend, it ended very badly because she and another girl were like very close with Polly. And then when Polly died, their relationship was like totally ruptured and Luca hasn't really sought out any romance since. But with Naomi, Luca finds someone who kind of understands her grief and knows what it means to lose someone who's really close to you. And also like starts to kind of open herself up to romance in ways that she hadn't for like a really long time. But the plot is like very properly kicked off when Luca's older sister, Whitney, doesn't return from a party one night and she's found murdered the next morning. I also think that this book does a really good job of establishing the relationship between Luca and Whitney before Whitney's death, because I think I really cared about their relationship and thought that Whitney was a well-rounded character because you get like a good sense of their sisterly relationship before Whitney disappears. So even though I knew that Whitney was going to die because it was in the description for the book, it's still kind of shocking and upsetting, even though you know it's coming because you see how much Polly's death years ago has affected Luca and losing Whitney like really tears Luca apart again. And yeah, oof, yeah, this novel definitely like gives you some strong emotions. It's not just like someone has been murdered and we're going to cleverly figure out who it could have been. Like it's very much a book that grapples with characters grief over people they've lost and like what it means to lose someone in a really violent and unexpected way. Yeah, I knew from the very beginning of this book that Whitney was going to die because the description says that Luca is intent on finding out the secret behind the curse after her sister dies. But you end up caring about Whitney and Luca's relationship so much because Rebecca Barrow does a really good job with their banter and she kind of shows the way that the sisters support each other and how they get along and how sometimes they argue, but they still care about each other a lot. And so it's just far enough into the book that you've gotten really attached to Luca and Whitney's relationship. And then suddenly she's found murdered. And it's really shocking and really sad. I think there was one particular bit that I thought really nailed the sisterly relationship. And that's when uh, Whitney tries very unsubtly to be kind of a wing woman for Luca at a party because she knows that Luca is like, immediately crushing on Naomi. And Luca is super embarrassed by how obvious her sister is. 
and calls her after the party when they like have gone to different places and leaves kind of a joking voicemail being like, please don't try that again or I'll have to kill you. And she means it in like a very joking and annoyed way. And it felt very realistic to the way that sisters were like sometimes clash and like jokingly say mean things to each other, but ultimately love each other. Also, there was a moment later on in the novel where the police kind of try to use this this as evidence against Luca and be like, well, you have ties to both of the most recent dead girls on Paris. And there's a voicemail of you saying that you'd be willing to kill your sister, even though like Luca obviously meant it in a joking way, which personally was a little bit funny to me because if I ever, if, if like you ever got murdered, I would probably be in danger on account of the fact that I think there is recorded audio of me saying I'd kill you in episode 15. <laughs> I did not remember that, but uh, I'll try not to be murdered just in case you, you won't be implicated. So I think even though Whitney is a fair amount older than Luca and their relationship is very much older sister, younger sister, I still felt like their sisterly relationship was like something I could recognize and felt very authentic and fleshed out, even though Whitney is only alive for a very short portion of the book. Yeah, she has such a strong personality and the way that Luca thinks about her through the rest of the book, you feel like you kind of understand the character through Luca's memories of her, even if you don't see her on page for that much, which I thought was a really good way of establishing an emotional connection to the plot because a lot of the times, as you said, thrillers are like, oh no, someone has been murdered, we must figure out who it is. But in this case, the author wants you to really care about the murder victim and I think she succeeded really well in that because you do genuinely want justice, like not just so Luca can have peace of mind, but also because like Whitney is a character that the author wants you to care about and so you want to understand what happened to her. And I think what a big part of what drives Luca in this book is that she has lost not only her best friend and her sister, but she's lost them in very shocking, upsetting, and unresolved ways. Like, it's not like she knew this was going to happen. It's that two of the people that she was closest to in the world were alive one day and the next day they weren't. And she is kind of unable to get over her grief because there's no resolution for how they died or who would be responsible for that. And I think a lot of what drives Luca is that she's like, I can't grapple with the fact that Whitney and Polly are both dead and like, they'll never come back, but at least I could maybe solve the mystery behind their deaths and get some kind of closure in that way even if I was never given like any warning that they were going to be lost soon. Yeah, grief is a really big aspect of this book, a lot bigger than in some other thrillers that I've read, because it's not just that she lost her friend several years before, it's also like her fresh grief over losing her sister. So it's not just this like whodunit about Luca seeking out the killer and trying to understand their motivation, but it's also a story about what it means to like very suddenly lose two people who are incredibly close to you when you're like not prepared for it and you didn't think this kind of thing was going to happen to you. So like even if Luca can solve Whitney and Polly's murders, the book is really clear but she's never really going to have her best friend and her sister back and like understanding what happened to them will give her some amount of closure but they'll still be gone so throughout the book we really do see Luca and her family kind of grappling with the grief over Whitney's death and like the holes that she's left in their life and the idea that maybe they'll never truly understand what happened. This is still very much a thriller it's not just a novel about like processing grief and trauma there is mystery and secrets and plot twists and stuff because as Luca starts investigating her sister's death, she starts uncovering a lot of other secrets on Paris that certain people want to stay buried. I think it's very much the kind of thing where one death kind of like pulls on a string and then starts unraveling the whole thing and suddenly you realize that Whitney's death is tied to a lot of dark secrets on this island, which is like my favorite kind of murder mystery, which is like when one murderer starts uncovering a much bigger conspiracy and you can kind of see these seemingly unrelated things kind of being drawn together, especially I think it works well on the island setting, which maybe we'll talk about in like a second once we just get past plot stuff. I think the setting is 
why the conspiracy works so well because Paris is like this really insular tiny community where everyone knows each other and so all of these secrets that Luca is learning like she knows the people who have these secrets and she's seeing how like what this person knows connects to Whitney and what this person did connects to her sister's death I really enjoy as you said, a kind of murder mystery conspiracy where one person's death starts uncovering like a whole host of other dark secrets. And the rich people in this book have a lot of secrets they would really rather not have come to light. Especially because Luca doesn't trust the cops on Paris, so she ends up doing a lot of unofficial investigating on her own. She thinks that they're both incompetent and corrupt, which is like pretty true. So I think a lot of thrillers do this as an excuse to have the main character investigating on their own so they can like drive the plot forward. But I think also this book is sort of like critiquing the system of policing and is like, who do these systems really benefit? And are the victims in this book people who would really be investigated that much, especially when Paris wants to keep its like squeaky clean image? Because Paris has this long history of girls who drowned and died in house fires and were murdered in back alleys. And Luca kind of thinks these are all part of the Paris curse. And they're really all deaths that have just been brushed under the rug because Paris wants to keep his image of like this perfect, serene seaside community. So they're kind of like, well, that was really tragic, but that was just a sad accident. So we're going to call this case closed and move on and hope that nothing else bad happens. But Luca kind of sees past that veil and is like, there's something dark at the heart of Paris and I'm going to find out what it is. Yeah, I think this book does a really good job of kind of critiquing the system of policing that's present in the book. Like you said, a lot of thrillers will have the characters do an investigation on their own in order to make the protagonist do something. But in this case, it really does feel like the only way that Luca will get any kind of justice for what's happened to Whitney and Polly and all the other girls is if she investigates on her own. Because we see pretty early on that the police are really not that interested in figuring out what happened to Whitney. They're like, she was a Black girl who went to a party and stayed out late and was drinking like obviously whatever happened to her is her own fault and like Polly's death was just like an accident we don't need to talk about it anymore and oh Luca is her sister and she's mentally ill this makes her a suspect so you see all the ways that the police on Paris are immediately jumping to conclusions and trying to cover things up and they don't want to understand the truth they just want everything in Paris to like seem perfect and beautiful and serene even if it's not and I just thought it was very effectively done like you feel the injustice and anger that Luca has towards the fact that these people who are supposed to be saving these girls and finding out what happened to them aren't actually doing anything at all. So it doesn't feel like Luca is investigating just because the plot needs her to. It feels like the book really understands that like there's no other way that this will be solved if Luca doesn't do it herself. I also have mentioned that Luca thinks that there's a curse haunting Paris and that's the reason it kills girls. But I, I don't think it's a spoiler to say this because we said this at the start of the episode. This isn't really a supernatural book. Luca does believe there's a curse, but it's kind of more of a pattern of dead girls that have just been brushed aside to maintain Paris's reputation as this like carefree, sunny, rich community. It's not like an actual supernatural force because Luca thinks that like the curse isn't, you know, just magically killing people. It's more that like someone still has to do this, but it's just like the most recent in a long line of deaths. So yeah, this is like one of the first non- magical books that we've been doing for this podcast. So another thing that kind of gets dredged up due to Luca's investigation is her really tense relationship with Jada, who was her ex-friend that kind of drifted apart after Polly died and is also the daughter of the head police officer on Paris. So like we said, Jada, Polly, and Luca were really close in middle school. And after Polly's death, Jada and Luca just kind of drifted apart because of their 
different ways of coping with Polly's death and like Luca's obsession with the idea that someone out there had killed Polly. I thought it had an interesting explanation of like the lasting effects that grief have on people because they were both really close friends with Polly and we kind of see that the different ways that they've coped with her death. And Jada and Luca are also two characters who both don't really quite fit into society on Paris but in different ways because Jada isn't rich, her dad is the head of police and that's why she's on Paris not because her family is super rich and Luca is a black queer girl and so the different ways that they don't fit into society society are also kind of what ended up driving them apart as well and so through this kind of complicated relationship we see more about like what fitting in on Paris society does to people and also the different ways that people on Paris have reacted to these tragic deaths. It was an interesting relationship I didn't really know anything about the other characters in this before I was going in especially since we were reading an advanced readers copy so I didn't really have a ton of expectations other than island setting with some murder but I I found Jada and Luca's relationship really interesting, the way that they have these kind of old wounds between each other that have never really healed, and the way that they both are kind of mad at the other person for being able to fit into Paris in ways that they can't, because Jada is lower class than Luca, but she's white, which makes it easier for her to like fit in in some ways. And Luca is able to kind of navigate the world of rich people more easily, but she's one of the few people of color on Paris and is also queer, and that kind of sets her aside. And the sort of nuanced way that it talks about like who fits in among the families on Paris and who doesn't was interesting and I thought added a good layer to the story. Also, not to spoil too much of the book, but through Jada's connection to the police on Paris, we see like even more of exactly how incompetent and corrupt these people are and the lengths that they're willing to go to pretend that everything is fine and that girls aren't dying. So Jada doesn't really get along with Luca, but she also kind of understands that there's something bad going on and that if they want to understand what's happening, they have to do it themselves. Luca is also quite infatuated with Naomi from like the very first moment that they meet. And I think their budding romance is another part of the story. At first it's like, kind of uncomplicated but of course this is a thriller so it's not exactly like sweet summer romance all the way through but that is an aspect of the story that I think I won't say too much on because this book when we release this episode will have just come out so I think we're gonna hold back on talking about actual spoilers in this but I thought it was interesting where Luca and Naomi's relationship went because at first I was like oh this is cute and then I was like oh no this is a lot more complicated than that. Yeah I think it's an interesting relationship because like you said it seems like a kind of sweet romance and then the more you read the more you realize that Naomi is actually a kind of complicated character with a lot of secrets of her own and they might not necessarily be secrets that are directly connected to Paris but they still exist and affect her relationship with Luca so it's definitely like an unconventional romance because it doesn't have the same arc of like two characters meet they fall in love everything is good it's kind of more of characters uncovering secrets about each other but I did think it was really interesting and I feel like there aren't a ton of thrillers at least that I've read that have like essential romance between two girls so that was just kind of fun to read about as well. I think it's also a bit of an exploration of how love won't necessarily make everything better because it's not true that like if you're mentally ill and you find like the right romantic partner suddenly you'll be happy all the time and everything will be perfect and everyone will communicate well and your life will just be sunshine and rainbows from now on and meeting Naomi does improve Luca's life and Naomi is like an important person for her to lean on when she deals with losing her sister but also Luca is still dealing with like mental illness and grief and losing her sister and having like a cute romance with Naomi doesn't fix that even if it is like a positive aspect of her life and I think sort of another layer to the story is that Luca has parents who love her, but she's also kind of distant with because they don't really know how to deal with 
like the messier parts of her mental illness because they're just like, well, you're on medication and you have a therapist. Shouldn't you be like good forever now? Whereas Luca has a more healthy understanding that you can't really like fix mental illness. You can just kind of learn to live with it and create coping strategies that help you like deal with yourself and issues that come your way better. And I think it's, again, sort of like adding to the nuanced exploration of mental illness in this book that I thought was like really layered and sensitive for a thriller, which is like I said, kind of a genre where like mental illness can be sort of sensationalized. I think ultimately what I liked most about this book is that although it is a murder mystery and there's a lot of dark secrets and like shocking twists, it still feels really grounded in the characters. They feel like real people. They're reactions to situations feel very real their emotions their grief it feels like a book that's like inhabited by actual people and not like characters behaving in ways as to create the biggest most shocking twists of all time it just feels like people living in complicated situations trying to understand grief and mysteries and I just really liked that because it makes it feel the stakes so much more higher you're much more invested in the characters than you are in like a story where everyone is just behaving in like bizarre and shocking ways in order to have the biggest plot twist yeah, that's a great way of putting it. I also think the specific way that this book is written, which is in a very close third person point of view, present tense, I think, which is a little bit unusual for a young adult novel, which are often first person perspective and like thrillers, I think especially are, but it makes it feel like kind of literary, but also you're very inside Luca's head. So stuff feels very immediate and intimate. So you're not just seeing events unfold you're really like experiencing Luca's reaction to these events and I think it makes it feel like she's like a very strong established protagonist whose emotions are really well conveyed so I, I do agree it feels like it's not just authors being clever and coming up with plot twists and motives and murder weapons it feels very much like a book where the characters exist to drive the story forward with their emotions and reactions, not just like they're being moved around to like create little plot twists and be like, oh, maybe this thing is true. Maybe that thing is true. It, it feels very like it's grounded inside the characters' minds, like you said. Although that's not to say that I didn't find the plot twists and reveals shocking. There are several in this book that I totally didn't see coming, but in hindsight, I was like, oh no, the foreshadowing was there all along. How could I not see that? So this does have like several really good twists in it. They just feel like natural extensions of the story rather than like things the author inserted in order to make you gasp. Also, I really liked the island setting for this. I grew up by the coast, so I know islands communities very well. So first of all, that was kind of fun to read. But also I think an island murder mystery is kind of like the bigger version of a locked room murder mystery. And I've been to like murder mystery dinner parties and stuff. And I think they're very fun because it's like someone in this room must be the killer. And I think it's fun because you have a very contained setting and there's like a very limited number of suspects you can have. And I think having an island setting for a murder mystery like this, like who killed Whitney? Who is behind Polly's death? is sort of an extension of that, because, but instead of like one room, you have an entire island, but it's still very contained. And also there's this extra layer that Luca has grown up on Paris and that adds in this likelihood that she knows the person behind Whitney's death and might know the person who's behind Polly's death. And that adds like extra stakes. That's like, Luca has lost her best friend and her sister, but depending on who's behind the, those deaths, she might lose someone else by learning that they're actually like a killer who's been hiding in plain sight. And I think it was just like, it, it was good. I liked it. The setting was well conveyed and atmospheric, but I think it also really added to like the stakes of the story because it's like, you know this community really well. You've grown up with these people. You think you know who they are, but 
possibly someone has been lying to you this whole time and is actually a cold-blooded killer. A locked room murder mystery is definitely a really good comparison because there is this sense that like the killer is someone in this book. It's not just like a random person on the periphery because it's such a small community that Luca knows everyone and everyone knows her. So the more secrets she uncovers, the more she starts learning about the people around her. And I really liked that. It makes everything feel very tense and urgent because you're like, who is it? Like which one of the characters did it? What kind of secrets are they going to uncover next? And yeah, the the island setting was also really well done. I just thought it was a great way to like put the characters in a location somewhere and make sure that the location is integral to the plot and that whoever committed the crime is like there and among everyone else and is known to everyone else. Also, I think it was just kind of fun to read a thriller where the setting is very like light and summery and there's a beach and there's sand and sun because I think sometimes you think of a thriller and you're like, oh, a rainy forest at night where a body has been found or like a gloomy town in Scotland or something. But the setting is someplace that could be very idyllic and people try very hard to make it seem that way by brushing all these deaths aside. So I think it was like kind of a fun atmosphere because it feels very different from like other thrillers I've read that are maybe more like gloomy and rain and decaying houses and stuff. Instead, it's kind of like the setting is where otherwise it could be a beach read about coming of age and family, but Instead, it's taking like this sharp turn into another genre completely once dead bodies start turning up. That's also a good point. In our episode about the Lost Boys, we mentioned that we really liked the setting of like this sunny Californian tourist town that has a bunch of vampires killing people at night. And I thought there's like a little bit of a similar vibe and then like it's this beautiful place that people go to vacation, but there's actually something very bad happening that no one wants to talk about. We read an advanced readers copy, like I said. So I don't know if the final version of this book has a map that went with it, but I think this book would be a great book to have a map because it is this very single contained setting. They don't leave the island. People mention the mainland, but it's not really important. Like the heart of the story is on Paris. So I don't know. I think it would be fun. I, I kind of want to like go to a bookstore and see if I can like find a final version of this to flip through and see if there's a map because I feel like there are very specific settings that come up a couple of times. And it would be great to have like a map to visualize that. I just like, I just think books should have maps in them, okay? They just belong there on the first page. Maps are very good. I don't think we'll be discussing the ending of this book or the particular twists since it's a really recent release, but like you can trust us when we say that the plot twists are good. I know, like there was one plot twist where I was like, oh yeah, aha, yeah, I saw that coming, I think. And then there was another plot twist where I was like, oh no, I, I did not see that coming in a million years. And I just think it was quite well done. I think this is the first thriller that Rebecca Barrow has written, but I hope it's not her last because I think she's a great new addition to the genre. And I hope she keeps writing books that are good because I will read them. Very much agreed. So I think we'll move on to our second book, which is I Killed Zoe Spanos by Kit Frick. It's also a young adult thriller. Kit Frick has written a couple of other like YA mystery and thrillers, but I haven't read any of them. Although I would like to now since I really enjoyed this one. Like Bad Things Happen Here, it has a title that really states what the book is about like right off the bat. I killed Zoe Spanos or like, does it really? Maybe something else is going on. Love to see. Also, I just want to personally mention that I think it's kind of funny that we read this book this summer that a, another very hyped young adult book came out, which is called I Kissed Shara Wheeler, which is by Casey McQuiston, because they're very similar sounding titles. Like I, K word, four syllable girl's name, but like total polar opposite vibes. 
So anyway, we have not read I Kissed Shara Wheeler. I just see it in the bookstore occasionally and I'm like, two ends of the spectrum with I Killed Zoe Spanos at one end and I Kissed Shara Wheeler at the other end. I just thought that was funny. I'm sorry. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that, but that is kind of funny. So I Killed Zoe Spanos is about a young woman called Anna Sicconi who is hired as a nanny for the summer for a rich family in the Hamptons the summer before she goes to college. And as soon as she arrives in the town, Anna quickly learns that she bears an uncanny resemblance to Zoe Stanos, a local girl a few years older than her who's been missing for almost six months. And so the twist of this book is that the very first chapter is a transcript of the police interview where Anna confesses to having accidentally killed Zoe at a party and then hiding her body. So Anna killed Zoe, or did she? And the whole book is kind of trying to understand, like, did Anna kill Zoe or did she not? And if she didn't kill Zoe, why did she confess to it? And if she didn't kill Zoe, then who did? I thought it was really fun to read with that setup because it's a bit like Knives Out is how you compared it in that we seemingly get the straightforward, this is what has happened. And the protagonist kind of trying to get out of the situation. But like also things about the situation don't quite add up. Like Anna claims that she killed Zoe by accident, but there are details that don't quite make sense and she can't really remember everything that happened. And as you read on, you slowly start to see holes in her theory. And it was just like, it was quite addictive. I read this book in like two sittings. This book goes back and forth between Anna's time at the Hamptons and a few months later when she's in jail. And another local girl named Martina Green is making a podcast to try and figure out what happened to Zoe. I, I, I guess technically Martina made the podcast when Zoe first disappeared and is like revamping it because the trail went dead. But then with Anna's confession, there's kind of new light being shown on the case. Basically, we, a book podcast, are doing an episode about a book with a podcast, which I think is very meta of us. Like you said, I do think that the setup of this book reminded me a lot of the movie Knives Out because you get the reveal, air quotes, of the murderer, air quotes, very early on, but things like don't really make sense and did the main character really do it? And so the rest of the novel is trying to figure out what actually happened. This book does have a very unreliable narrator, unlike bad things happen here, because you really cannot trust anything that Anna is thinking or saying in either part of the book. Not necessarily because she's lying to to you the reader but because she doesn't really understand what happened she thinks she understands but maybe that's not the truth maybe it is the truth if it is the truth why don't details match up and so like you said it's a really addictive read because you just want to understand like did she actually kill zoe and if she didn't kill zoe who did and why did she confess to it so i also read this book in like two settings flat especially because there are these two timelines that are slowly converging so you have to keep reading on because information gets revealed in one that changes what you think about the other timeline and the podcast is also being produced so you just keep reading on and on it was yeah it was just a very addictive read it also has kind of a similar exploration of wealth and privilege to bad things happen here I think the author has said that it's inspired a bit by the book Rebecca because it's about the disappearance of a rich girl and this lower class protagonist who's often compared to her. And there's also this really big, cool house. In the case of I Killed Zoe Spenos, it's Windermere, the home of Zoe's boyfriend, which is a kind of a big rundown manor. And so Zoe is like a rich girl who belongs in this Hamptons town and has lived here her whole life. But Anna is the daughter of a working class mother from Brooklyn. And she's only in this town for the summer because she needs to get paid and have a job. So she kind of starts to see the dark underside 
of the town and the secrets people are keeping and the fact that it's maybe not the beautiful little seaside town people pretend it is. I've actually never read Rebecca, even though I think it's like right up my alley and I've been meaning to for ages. And I feel like I should after I read this because I thought this was very engaging and I could sort of pick up on the nods to Rebecca in the book because I'm like familiar with the basic premise of that book. But yeah, I think there is also kind of using the vehicle of a thriller to provide some social commentary similar to how bad things happened here to that because obviously there's a lot of class stuff because Anna feels very like a fish out of water in this Hamptons world because she is not from a super rich world but is now hanging out in the Hamptons which is like this incredibly exclusive area and she just feels like an outsider even before people start saying that she looks like this missing girl there's sort of this sense of uneasiness that she doesn't really belong there. And also another thread throughout the book is that Zoe's boyfriend, Caden Talbot, is Black and was adopted by white parents. And he talks about facing a lot of scrutiny due to his race because there is the like, oftentimes people will suspect the boyfriend of the husband when a woman goes missing, but also Caden kind of gets a lot of undue suspicion simply because of his race, because he is kind of an outsider in this very white town and people suspect him in ways that are unfair. So uh, yeah, I think similar to Bad Things Happen Here, it takes a thriller genre and also like kind of threads it with some social commentary about class and race and what it means for bad things to happen in really exclusive communities and who gets the attention and who gets the suspicion and like the ways that justice can be kind of messed up by privilege. I think the difference between the two books is that in Bad Things Happen Here, the town very much wants to hush up these deaths. And in I Killed Zoe Spanos, Zoe's disappearance and possible death is extremely high profile. And everyone wants to know what happened to her. But the reason they haven't found out what happened to her is, as we learn over the course of the book, a lot of people are keeping secrets about something they knew about Zoe or something that they saw her do or something they were doing on the evening that he disappeared that they don't want other people to learn about. So it is kind of similar in that there's like this greater conspiracy of secrets people are keeping and things that have happened in the town that they don't necessarily want outsiders to know about. But Zoe is such a high profile missing persons case that everyone wants to know what happened to her. They just don't have the full picture. Also, unlike bad things happen here, Anna is very much an unreliable narrator, largely because when she was in high school, she was a party girl and have a lot of blackouts due to drinking. So there was a lot of just nights that she doesn't remember because she was so drunk that she was completely out of it. And also she has kind of these strange senses of feeling like certain parts of the Hamptons are familiar to her, even though she's never supposedly been there. And there's no reason that she should have been familiar with something like the ice cream store or the beaches or the inside of Zoe's house. But she gets these weird flashes that she's been here before. And it's very much a story about not only do you feel like you don't belong in this rich exclusive community, but you feel like you can't even trust yourself because it's clear that there's something going on, but Anna doesn't know what because she can't even trust herself. One thing that I thought was really fun about this book is the excerpts of the podcast by Martina Green are included in the book. And they're mostly kind of an exploration and an explanation of everything that happened leading up to Zoe's disappearance and afterwards. But I think it was a really good way for the reader to kind of get the backstory on what has happened prior to the start of the book without without these giant info dumps. Because Martina will like interview someone who will kind of give you the basic rundown of their relationship with Zoe or what happened to her or what people think happened to her. So you don't have to sit there while characters hash out the details for pages and pages. Instead, you get these fun little excerpts of a podcast, which I thought was just like, I love books with unique formats. And it also just felt like a really clever way to introduce the reader to all of the details of the story without kind of making you sit down and read this huge chunk of exposition. 
Agreed. I really like the podcast format as well. I think it also kind of contributes to the fact that Zoe's death is really high profile, but there's also certain people who don't want the information about where she went and what happened to her that night to be dug up because it's like Martina is very much putting this out there as a public thing. It's not just a private investigation. So there's also kind of the stakes of like, this is a case that's on the news. This is a case people have investigation. Like this is a case that people have stakes in and maybe someone will be willing to put a stop to this in really violent ways. So unlike in Bad Things Happen Here, it's not like people hushing up a case, but also it brings with it like scrutiny and also possible danger. So similar to Bad Things Happen Here, Zoe's disappearance and Anna's investigation, as well as Martina's investigation, immediately start revealing a lot of secrets that people in the town, which is called Heron Mills, want to keep secret. And even though the book kind of pretty much immediately wants you to doubt that Anna actually killed Zoe, you also become immediately aware that there's definitely something going on with Anna herself because she has all these memories of visiting the town and a feeling that something has bad has happened to her a few months before but she doesn't really remember what so I actually really enjoy that there's like this sense of uncertainty around the main character I think maybe it would have felt a little bit cheap if we hadn't already gotten the confession but as it is we know that Anna thinks that her memories and her feelings of unease mean something but you were also led to think that maybe that's not actually true and that she's simply been led down the wrong path like we see her in the investigation room with the police and they're kind of like nudging her and like trying to get her to say things that she's really uncertain about so pretty early on in the book you become pretty convinced that whatever Anna thinks happened is not actually what happened to Zoe which I thought was a really clever way of doing it exactly it's like Anna killing Zoe would be a really neat solution for a lot of people involved but it's really we as the reader know it's a red herring from the moment it's introduced because it's all completely thrown into doubt like what kind of thriller would give away the big plot twist in the first chapter like a bad one and obviously this is a good thriller because you both enjoyed it and we're talking about it on our podcast so it's complicated and you really like have to watch the characters dig into it and go past obvious easy answers to find out the truth of what happened to Zoe. Yeah, a lot of people in the town of Heron Mills would really like Anna to be the murderer, I think, because it's a very easy solution. Like, this outsider came to town, accidentally killed the golden girl that everyone loved, tried to hush it up, eventually was found out. But it's such a neat solution that you immediately know it can't possibly be the truth. And there's a lot of people in town who, like, are pretty aware that's not the truth, but they don't quite want to admit it to other people. It's very clear there's something going on because Anna killing Zoe is obviously a huge red herring but you don't really understand exactly what happened to Zoe or why she disappeared the way she did until much further into the book. I won't spoil who the murderer was, but like with Bad Things Happen Here, I thought it was a really good plot twist that has the correct foreshadowing, but you don't quite see where it's leading until the very end. And then suddenly all the dominoes fall into place and suddenly you understand everything about the night Zoe disappeared that people don't want to talk about and how that led up to her death. I'm also going to refrain from discussing the ending just because I feel like thrillers, you don't want to know the plot twist because that's like all the fun is reading up until the plot twist and then being like, oh my God, there it is. But yeah, the last chapter especially made me scream. I thought it was really well done. This book also kind of said cops suck because we see really early on, like the very first chapter, that they basically coerce Anna into a confession by being like, and then you did this thing, right? And then you did this thing. And then you accidentally killed Zoe and you panicked, right? Even, even though her story makes no sense, she doesn't remember most of the important details and some of the important details she does get wrong. So people like Martina Green and her podcast are the ones who are really getting stuff done. I think this book also definitely 
criticizes policing. I feel like a lot of thrillers do that, but in this case, it also feels much in the same vein as bad things happen here of showing that like people don't really want to dig into the truth if it's going to bring up a lot of other secrets. They want a simple and easy solution where they don't have to think too hard about what happened. And I think the reason the podcast is so important in this book is that Martina looks at the details and is like, this doesn't make any sense. And if no one is going to figure out the truth, then I guess I'll have to do it. The podcast stuff actually reminded me a bit of Sadie by Courtney Summers, which is another very good thriller that involves a podcast of someone investigating a girl's disappearance. I think it's fun when people incorporate social media stuff into thrillers because I think that is very much an aspect of like modern day understandings of like missing people and murder and like stuff like that. So I think that like the mixed media format is both really fun to read, but also like very reflective of like how people navigate the 21st century. Oh yeah, I love Sadie. It's one of my top thrillers. I should reread that sometime. But yeah, I think there's definitely a connection between the podcast format in these two books. And also there are so many true crime podcasts out there. This book is definitely kind of playing with the idea of like this amateur sleuth who wants to uncover the truth that the police can't uncover. But in this case, Martina is doing it because the police are just like unwilling to go further now that they've gotten a confession, even if they realize it doesn't actually make very much sense. Unrelated, but one thing that I appreciated about this book in addition to the mixed media format was that there is no romance, which I thought was a good choice for this book. I have read some books where I'm like, no, I'm not really as interested in the romance as I am like the mystery stuff happening here. So I appreciated that the focus is really on uncovering the truth and trying to clear Anna's name and find out what happened to Zoe because Anna is kind of interested in Zoe's boyfriend, Caden, but she knows that it would be really bad for her to act on those feelings and any relationship would be bad and weird. So she doesn't pursue it and nothing happens. And I was like, thank God, because I was reading it the whole time being like, oh my God, do not kiss the boyfriend of the missing girl who looks exactly like you. That would be so weird on so many levels. And thankfully it didn't. So hooray for that. I also really appreciated that because Anna and Caden kind of bond over Zoe's disappearance. Caden, like he's mourning her and hoping that she's alive, but knowing that she probably isn't. And Anna, because she's really unsettled by everyone in Heron Mills, like constantly comparing her to Zoe and looking at her like they've seen a ghost. And she does eventually kind of develop some feelings for him, but is immediately like, no, that is a terrible idea. Whether Zoe is dead or alive, that is an awful idea. I am not going to act on these feelings. We will just remain friends. And I was just like, oh, thank God. I feel like there are some authors that would have tried to go down the romance route and I just would not have been here for it but Kid Frick was luckily smarter than that. You heard it here sometimes not having romance in your book is good. Indeed. Also I just found it much more interesting to learn about Caden and Zoe's relationship over the course of the book because they were basically like the it couple of the high school when they were there. They were like in love for years and years. They went to college and they were planning to like have a relationship after college as well. And on the surface, they appear like this really perfect, untouchable, loving relationship. But as the book progresses, some of the secrets that we start to learn about Hare and Mills and the people in it are that maybe Caden and Zoe's relationship wasn't quite as perfect as it looked. Maybe there actually was some tension going on underneath it. And I just found that much more interesting to learn about than some kind of like half-assed weird romance where a guy dates someone who looks like his missing girlfriend. There would be so much going on there. I mean, you could actually do something really interesting with that. And I feel like that may or may not be the plot for Becca, which I haven't read yet. But for me, I was just 
really invested in characters like uncovering the truth. And I, I kind of was like, Caden seems like a good guy. I don't want him to turn out to be a weirdo and date his missing girlfriend's doppelganger. So I'm glad that didn't happen. It is interesting thinking about these two books in conversation with each other because they are both young adult thrillers. So they're kind of in the same genre and age range. And actually the reason that we decided to pair I Killed Zoe Spanos with Bad Things Happen Here is that it was like one of the comparison titles being used in the marketing for Bad Things Happen Here. And we thought it would be good to talk about two books instead of one because it's generally easier to spin out a full-length episode from more than one novel. But I think they kind of are sort of almost inverses of each other thematically because bad things happen here is about learning that your home heart hides really dark secrets and that the people you care about might be hiding dark sides of themselves. But I Killed Zoe Spanos is kind of about being an outsider in a community and stirring up dark secrets because you're not from that place and you have sort of a different perspective on it. So they both involve a dead girl in a rich exclusive community and kind of the secrets that are dredged up by investigating her murder. But they're sort of like inverses of each other in that way, which I thought was really interesting to think about them side by side. That is a good comparison. Yeah. And I think another way that they're inverses is that Luca is a protagonist that you don't really doubt. Like you doubt her belief that there's an actual supernatural curse, but you never doubt the idea that Polly and Whitney were murdered and that there is something else going on in this town. But with I Killed Zoe Spanos, Anna is a really unreliable narrator. And so even if you doubt from the very beginning that she actually killed Zoe, you know that there's something else going on below the surface. And I just thought that was an interesting comparison because I think it can be hard to do unreliable narrators and I think it can also be hard to do narrators who are utterly convinced that they know what is right and what is true but I feel like both of these books succeeded at what they were trying to do with those characters. One thing I also want to talk about in relation to I Killed Zoe Spanos is that this book is super gothic and admittedly I just finished a college course on American gothic literature so I kind of like am in the headspace to wander around pointing at everything and be like oh my god that's gothic but this book is totally gothic. And I think that's very intentional, especially because one hallmark of the gothic is this idea called the uncanny, which is unfortunately a term popularized by Sigmund Freud. And I can't believe we're bringing up Freud on this podcast. I'm so sorry. <laughs> How dare you? Okay, but like it is relevant. I'm getting there. So basically the uncanny refers to kind of when the familiar and the unfamiliar are blended in this way that creates a very uneasy atmosphere. One way that I like to explain to people is Uncanny Valley, which is when something looks kind of human, but not quite human, and that disturbs you. So the uncanny is kind of like that. In the case of I Killed Zoe Spanos, Anna has this ongoing sense of deja vu about the Hamptons that's very uncanny because she's supposedly never been to this town before. She's taken a job as a nanny, but there are certain places that feel strangely familiar. And every so often she kind of knows things about Zoe without being told even though she supposedly never met Zoe prior to her disappearance. And that kind of intellectual uncertainty of being unable to trust your own mind and what you know is super gothic. Also, you mentioned Windermere at the very start of our discussion on this book. And it's also a super gothic setting as well, because it's this rundown mansion that was like once really fancy and well-maintained, but now it's just like kind of been left to ruin. And it's also very much haunted by secrets and the memory of its former glory. And it's so gothic that characters in the book think it is haunted. Thank you for that discussion of gothic. I also had to read about Sigmund Freud and the Uncanny for my class, but I've completely forgotten everything that I read about that article. So that was actually a really interesting comparison that I had not thought of. 
I think it's probably intentional because Rebecca is supposed to be a pretty gothic novel and this is kind of drawing on Rebecca. So I, I liked that because it was fun having studied something academically and then reading a book for fun that ended up having a lot of the conventions of a gothic novel, but kind of reworked into this modern setting. Also, to be honest, one of the, also like on the topic of settings, one of my favorite parts of I Killed Zoe Spanos was the setting. I think people imagine gothic literature as having like a very gloomy, dark atmosphere with like storms and moors and crumbling buildings. But I think the setting of this book is sort of like a sun-washed gothic of this really nice, luxurious town in the Hamptons by the seaside where there's like fancy ice cream stores and beaches. But it, it, just, like, it hides very dark secrets underneath its, this veneer of being like a rich, happy seaside town. And I liked that it was, I just thought it was like a very enjoyable, unique setting for a thriller, similar to Bad Things Happen Here. And I kind of liked that it was gothic, but not gloomy. It was kind of like the bad things are hiding in broad daylight under like a sunny sky on what should be like a lovely summer day. Sun-washed gothic, that's a really good term. I'll have to remember that for the future. We are both big fans of gothic on this podcast and have in fact done the whole prior episode on gothic books. So I, I, I selected I Killed Zoe Spanos a bit randomly as a possible companion for bad things happen here. And then the more I read of it, the more I was like, wow, there are actually a lot of similarities between these two. I am secretly a genius or possibly I just read that this book was compared to bad things happen here. Yeah, we can't take any credit for that because the advertising for this was like, four fans of I Killed Zoe Spanos by Kit Frick. And we were like, oh, great. If they said bad things happen here was like that book, we can just pair them and do an episode on them. I did really enjoy reading both of these books, though. I will definitely have to track down more of Kit Fix thrillers because I was absolutely floored by some of the plot twists in Zoe Spanos. It was really addictive. I loved the setting. I feel like there's just like so much going on in it, so many secrets. And Bad Things Happen Here is Rebecca Barrow's first thriller, which is pretty different from her YA contemporary novels, although it has a similar focus on like characters and growth, I feel like, and coming of age. But I found them both really compelling and interesting books. And I just love they both have these settings of these beautiful, elite, rich communities that are nonetheless hiding a lot of dark secrets that are slowly coming to light, despite people's best intentions in hiding them. The settings of these two, I think, were probably my favorite parts. I love a good island setting. I love a good seemingly idyllic town that actually has a lot of dark secrets in its underbelly so yeah I really I think that like the settings are really what help pair these books together and it's put me in a mood to read more gothic literature <laughs> surprisingly despite all the sunshine I think my final takeaway from these books is that the next time I'm on a nice vacation at the beach I'll keep an eye out for any murder investigations that I may join and with that, we've been Never the Twins Shall Meet. If you'd like to keep up with our further podcasting misadventures, you can find us on social media. We are on Instagram at Never the Twins Shall Meet, on Twitter at Never Twins Cast, on Tumblr at Never the Twins Shall Meet.tumblr.com, and we also have a website, Never the Twins Shall Meet.com. If you've enjoyed this episode or others, please feel free to leave us a rating or review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts.